Hear God call us to worship from Acts 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent out to the Gentiles. They will listen. He, being Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The message of the gospel is going forth with all boldness and without hindrance. Uh, this year at Christ Pres, we've been going through the whole Bible together and thinking about the four-part story of Scripture. Creation, that God made everything by the word of his power. He spoke everything into existence, and he said that it was good. And we were made in his image, to bear his image and to spread his glory into all that he had made. But it didn't take long, and we rebelled. We turned from God, and we ran towards self and self-interest. But God has not left us alone in that. He's given us a redeemer. And in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus is restoring all things, restoration, that everything is moving toward Jesus. When we gather for worship, what we are striving to do together is to live out that four-part story together. And so that means we come and we acknowledge and confess that we are rebellious we are sinful, we are broken, and that we need a redeemer, and that God has redeemed us in Jesus. So we're going to do that together this morning. We're going to acknowledge and confess our sin together out loud with a confession that will be up on the screen. And then after we do that, we'll take a few moments to quietly spend some time reflecting and going before our God, confessing our sin and brokenness and seeing his grace to us in Jesus. But let's confess our sin together this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, out of the overflow of your love, you made all things good. We were created in your image to love you, each other, and the place you put us. Our lives were covenant, worship, work, rest, and love. But when tempted, we turned away from you and ran headlong into sin and destruction. In this, we brought shame, guilt, and curse onto ourselves and all of creation. Because of this, we spend our days striving to feel fulfilled. But your grace is changing us. Instead of our work being an expression of worship, it is what we look to for our identity but your grace is growing us. Instead of our relationships being an expression of the love Christ has for us, we often expect others to be our Savior. But your grace is saving us. Thank you that in Jesus we are forgiven. Father, show us that the fullness of your love has come to us in Christ. Jesus, your love for us drove you to the cross to cover our sin with your blood. Convince us that the resurrection means your love has defeated sin and death. Holy Spirit, reveal to us that all of our attempts to be complete apart from Christ are futile. Change us, grow us, shape us by your love. All is grace. All is gift. Amen.
Now let's take a few moments to quietly go before our God, confess our sin, and see his forgiveness to us in Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy to us in Christ. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would grow us, change us by your grace to see more clearly our sin and more clearly our need for Jesus, that we, be, we would be a people who throughout the entirety of our lives are repenting and believing the gospel over and over. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, God's story is true. Forgiveness is real because Christ has paid for it with his own blood. And so God wants us to hear and be assured of his grace and his forgiveness to us in Jesus. This morning that comes from Romans chapter 5 for us. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Our Christ has made us right with God. We are forgiven in him. And so now let's declare the reality that we belong to Jesus and that our lives are in his hands. We're going to do that this morning using the Heidelberg Catechism uh, question number one. So I'm going to ask this question and then let's respond together. Beloved of Christ, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because we belong to Christ by his Holy Spirit, he assures us of eternal life and makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Beloved, our, hand, our lives are in the hands of Jesus, uh, our Savior. This morning, uh, we're going to begin by uh, looking at the New Testament together. This year, we've been going through the, the whole Bible together and thinking about the four-part story of Scripture, which we already mentioned, creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. Uh, and last week, um, Dave uh, summed up the Old Testament uh, for us uh, with the books of Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. And so this morning, we're beginning in the New Testament. And we'll be in the New Testament for the rest of the year. And where we're going to begin is in Acts chapter 1. So we're going to begin with the book of Acts. And you may be out there and ask this question, JP, why not a gospel? Um, 
Well, I've got a few reasons for it, so let me explain a little bit there. One is that last year, the year of 2019, if, you, if you'll remember, if you were with us, we went through the Gospel of John together. We took a break in the summer and spent some time in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, going through the Sermon on the Mount. So we spent all of 2019 um, in a Gospel uh, together. So that's one reason. Another reason is this, is that the book of Acts and everything that comes after the book of Acts all of Paul's letters, John's letters, Peter's letters, all the way to uh, the book of Revelation are constantly referring back to the real, actual, historical events of what happened in the Gospels. That is, Jesus' life, his perfect, sinless life, his death on the cross for our sin, that even though he knew no sin, he went the cross and became our sin for our forgiveness to make us right with God, death couldn't hold him down. Death could not hold him down. It's an actual real historical event that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So the resurrection as well too. The rest of the New Testament is constantly referring back to those actual real historical events of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, which we'll see uh, together this morning. Luke, who is the writer of the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, so we should think about the book of Acts as kind of like volume two of Luke's writings, he actually sees the book of Acts as a continuation of what Jesus began to do. And he actually says that in verse one of chapter one. So the book of Acts is a continuation of the work that Jesus uh, began. And we're going to spend a number of week in, uh, weeks in the book of Acts. Um, and it will set the historical stage for the rest of the New Testament of what we're going to look at. So, let's step back into history a little bit here. Let's read about some of these events that would absolutely radically change the entire world. I'm going to begin with verse 1 of chapter 1 of Acts. And then I'm going to read several different portions of it. But this is God's word for us this morning. In the first book, O Theophilus... I have dealt with all that Jesus to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Down to verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and on all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Down to verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Down to verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, 
show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And then shooting forward all the way to the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Uh, Let's pray together and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Uh, Father, uh, we pray that you would move in our hearts and move in our minds to understand more deeply the importance of the historical events of what Jesus has done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension as he sits at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning over everything. Would you work it in our hearts to believe in these things more deeply, to understand these things more deeply? Help us to see our need for Jesus. Holy Spirit, we know that apart from you, we will believe none of this. And so we ask that you would work in us Work in us to see that Jesus is far more beautiful and believable than anything we could ever imagine. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The book of Acts sets the backdrop and the starting point for everything that we will see uh, going forward in and through the New Testament. And what it is, is it's a radical change in history in the whole world. And what happens in the book of Acts is that there is an explosion of the historical events, the reality of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. Coming into the lives of those who bear God's image in his world and changing hearts. And Jesus building his kingdom through the church. Building his church. And what we see constantly throughout the book of Acts is that these apostles that we just read about, as they move forward into the places where Jesus sends them, is that they are all about making much of the planner. They're all about making much of Jesus and what he has done, the reality of what he has done. And I think that for us, this, it's important for us to dig into this. I think particularly it's important for us to dig into this given what we're currently going through and our current um, cultural situation, medical situation, uh, however you want to name all of it. And I think that uh, it, it will help us as we dig into these events to be encouraged by the certainty that Jesus and his kingdom will prevail. We need to be encouraged by that right now, I think. This past week, I was uh, watching an interview uh, with, a, with a guy who has been in the journalism um, uh, industry for decades and decades and decades. Uh, and it was uh, with a group called the Aspen Institute. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Aspen Institute. Uh, but the Aspen Institute has been around since like 1949. And, uh, and it's a, a, an organization that was kind of like designed and put together to take all different kinds of walks of life and vocation and everything and to bring people together to discuss and to talk about how all of life fits together. Together, 
Okay, so you've got you, you've got people who are who are coming and are basically a part of this big think tank um, that are from the medical profession, from business, involved in in public policy and community service, a whole host uh, of different things. And they and they were interviewing this guy, and they were asking him as someone who has been involved in journalism for a number of years and everything, and who interviews people and and spends a lot of time traveling and talking to different people. They asked him the question, how do you see that people feel in America right now? How are Americans feeling about things? And his response was, he said, you know, I think that the tone of the public conversation and public discourse that we have in our country right now is leaving the vast majority of Americans feeling really sad at times embarrassed, and certainly exhausted. And when he said that, I was like, yes. Like, I don't know about you, but like, I, I, I feel that way about things in general right now. Sad and exhausted. Sad and exhausted that our, the tone of our public discourse is the way that it is. It seems to be all about tearing down and not building up. It seems to be all about sound bites instead of substance. It seems to be all about how can we figure out how to maintain power and work out things to benefit us. And certainly with everything that's going on with the coronavirus and all of that, super sad and exhausted with even all of the measures that we feel like we, we, we have to take to, to keep each other safe and everything. And I think that we need to be encouraged by the historical reality that Jesus came and he lived and he died on the cross for yours and my sin to forgive us and he was resurrected from the dead and that everything is moving toward Jesus because he's restoring all things. I think that we need to be encouraged by that. I think that our times feel very uncertain and very fragile and I don't know about you, but oftentimes I feel worried, scared, like not knowing where are things going. And I think that deep down we all kind of have this instinct that there has to be something that is more transcendent than our current situation. Something that is better. Something that is truer. Something that is more kind more charitable, more just, more generous, something that is more thoughtful than what we're currently experiencing. And, I, and the book of Acts shows us that Jesus is that transcendent thing. Jesus is the transcendent that you and I deep down are looking for and longing for. He is the better, the truer, the more generous, the more gracious, the more charitable, the more just. Jesus really and truly is. And so what I want us to see from Acts 1 this morning is that Jesus gives us power to live in the midst of uncertainty. Jesus gives us power to live in the midst of uncertainty. And we're going to look at that through two points this morning. One, we're going to look at the fragility of the disciples. And two, we're going to look at the power of Jesus. 
the power of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So let's begin by thinking together a little bit about the fragility of the disciples. In verses 6 through 11, what we have is the record of the historical event of Jesus' ascension. To go and to leave this earth and to go and to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and to take his position as the ruler of all of the cosmos. That's what we have happening in verses 6 through 11. Now, just for a moment, I want us to think a little bit about what these people, these disciples, these apostles, these 120 that have been with Jesus for the last 40 days have experienced together. They've experienced watching their best friend get arrested and taken into a Roman prison. They've experienced him being beaten and having to carry his own cross outside of the city. They've watched him. They've heard about it. They know that it's happened, that Jesus actually hung on that cross, that he actually died and was crucified for the forgiveness of our sins, of their sins. They've experienced what it feels like for Jesus to die and to feel like all hope is lost and it's gone. And yet three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus came to them. He showed them the scars. They touched them. They saw them. He even made meals for them. They ate together. They even got to experience watching how this earth and this reality right now could not hold the full presence of Jesus because he would just show up in places. They've experienced all of this. Jesus has taught them about what it is that he is doing in moving everything towards restoration They've experienced all of these things and Jesus is coming to them now and he's saying to them, all right, I'm leaving. I'm going to go and ascend and take my place at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And we see the fragility of the disciples and the question that they ask in verse 6. In verse 6, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, um, are, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Do we see how fragile that is? Everything feels uncertain for them, right? Like everything feels so fragile for them, and what do they do? They do what is natural. They reach out for control. They reach out to want to know what the outcomes are going to be. But notice how narrow their vision is. Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? Jesus, what are you planning to do so that everything works out for us positively? Things feel really uncertain, feel really fragile, and in the midst of fragility, the disciples want to make sure that Jesus is going to work everything out so that it benefits them. They know Jesus is more powerful than anyone that they've ever met before. They've seen the risen Christ, and they know that Jesus is so powerful, and they're asking him, Jesus, are you going to use your power to benefit us you see, what we see happening in this moment is that the disciples are more concerned and more desiring of the plan than they are the planner. Now, before we pile on to the disciples here, I think we do well to kind of put ourselves in their situation a little bit. Now, I don't know about you, but 
I'm a lot like the disciples. I'm fragile. I think that we're fragile. At any sign of uncertainty or instability, it's natural to us to want to reach out and to control. It's natural to us to want to fixate on the plan and try to control uh, outcomes instead of turning to Jesus. I think that's just natural for us. Like the disciples, I think that we have a, a pretty good connection with their own particular context. You see, what the disciples were actually doing is they were looking uh, for a political plan to fix everything for them and to benefit them. You see, because they asked the question, Jesus, when are you going to restore Israel? Israel was a marginalized people in the Roman Empire. They want to know, Jesus, what's the plan? We're looking for a political plan for you to restore us and to make everything so that it works out positively for us. And I think that we can identify with that even in our own current context of things. I think that we, too, can be tempted in our country to look to a political plan to fix things, to control outcomes, to make sure that everything is benefiting us the most to protect self-interest. And we live, we live in a, in a societal and a political climate that absolutely feeds on this. That absolutely feeds on this. That absolutely feeds on and works through tearing down. Works through, this is how I can make sure to make things in such a way that it's going to benefit you the best. We live in a political landscape that is constantly looking to put number one first. To think about self more than to think about others. I think that that's just true. This is why we live in sound bites. This is why every single ad that we see on the TV is all about tearing down the opponent. Always. Because it's trying to feed this sense that we have that somehow politics will fix everything for us so that we can maintain power. And it works in us, this operating out of fear. And the way that we can control outcomes is we make sure that this politician or that politician gets into this place or that place to ensure that the outcomes work out best for us. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be engaging and thoughtful in, in our political process. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, let's really take things in. Let's really listen. Let's be a people who can speak into the discourse a little bit more thoughtfully, for sure. But I think that deep down, what's true is that there must be something that is more transcendent than politics for the disciples and for us. And there is. There is Jesus. Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus points the disciples to here. He steps in with the disciples and with us. And in verse 7, he says, look, that stuff's not for you to know. The Father has set out the seasons and those plans in his authority. That's for the Father to know. Jesus points the disciples and points us to the reality that God is sovereign. That God is working all things for his glory and for our good. 
And Jesus even goes on with the disciples and he says to them, your vision is way too narrow. You want to know about Israel? Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to go to the farthest reaches of the earth and to proclaim the message of what I have done in my life, in my death, and in my resurrection and ascension. It's not just about restoring Israel. All of the earth belongs to me is what Jesus is saying. There is not a square inch on this planet that is not mine and I will reclaim it and restore it. He's looking at the disciples and he's saying, look, you're fixated on the plan and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn you and I'm going to fix your eyes on the planner, on me. And what you're going to do is you're going to go and you're going to tell everyone about the good news of the gospel. That there is something that is more transcendent than anything that this world has to offer. And it will absolutely radically change the whole world and all of history. In the midst of fragility and uncertainty, Jesus says, I'm going to give you power to live I'm going to give you power to live. You don't have to operate out of fear. You don't have to operate out of protecting your interests. You don't have to operate out of fixating on the plan. But I am giving you power to live in the midst of uncertainty. And that power is from me, my life, my death on the cross, purchasing forgiveness for your sins, my resurrection from the dead. Everything is moving toward what I am doing toward me. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's connecting the dots of the four-part story for the disciples and for us. That he is restoring all things, all of creation. He's giving the disciples and he's giving us a greater desire to see things the way that he sees things. That he made everything good and that every single one of us, every single human was made in his image to bear his image in the world and to spread his glory, but that we're broken and we're sinful and things are messed up and we need redemption and Jesus himself purchases it for us and he is restoring all things, that everything is moving toward Jesus. Jesus is working in us in his power to see things the way that he sees things, to long for the day when the last will be first, the lost will be found and the curse will be no more. All things made new. And the way that Jesus accomplishes this in us is he works in us to fix our eyes on him and what he has done. To fix our eyes on the planner and to proclaim what he has done to ourselves, to one another, and to a world that is out there. That there is something that is more transcendent, that is better, that's out there. Jesus He ascends to the Father. He takes his position as the ruler of heaven and earth. And we see that his power leads the disciples to do three things that we're going to see here in Acts 1. But these are three things that we will see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. That Jesus' power leads the disciples to prayer, to God's word, and to God's sovereignty. Prayer. God's word and God's sovereignty, okay? Jesus' power leads the disciples to this prayer. Verses 12 through 14, Jesus ascends and goes to the right hand of the Father, and the disciples go back to Jerusalem. 
They walk back to Jerusalem. They go into the upper room. And God's word tells us that what they do is they with one accord all together devote themselves to prayer. Which means that they went back to Jerusalem and to the upper room and they started talking to God. That's what prayer is. It's as simple as that. Prayer is talking to God, and they were talking to God, and we can imagine that what they were doing is they were waiting, and they were asking God for power to grow and desire to see Jesus and his work and what he has done in their own hearts and their own lives and what he promises that he will do as the historical events of his life, death, and resurrection move forward into the ends of the earth. Certainly, they were praying and confessing That they at times were valuing the plan more than the planner. Confessing their sin and asking God, work in our hearts to grow our desire to want and to crave Jesus more and more. Certainly they were praying for a greater desire to fix their eyes on Jesus. To trust in his sovereignty and his plan. Certainly they were praying for power and boldness to share the message of the gospel with a world and with themselves that feels incredibly uncertain and fragile. Certainly they were praying that God would grow in them a desire to love the things that God loves. That God would grow in them a desire to be a presence of peace presence of care, a presence of thoughtfulness, a presence of encouragement and grace to care about the things that God cares about, justice and mercy and walking humbly with God. Certainly they were praying for all of those things. And in their prayers, what that led them to do was to go to God's Word and see that they are defined by God's Word. In verses 15 through 20, we get this account of what Peter does. Peter steps up and he has something to say. You'll notice Peter always has something to say if you read the Gospels and uh, and the book of Acts. But Peter steps up and he says, look, here's what we know is true. God's word defines us and God's word is entirely true. That's what Peter says. God said through the Holy Spirit, speaking through David, that Judas was going to betray Jesus. We had that long before Jesus and Judas even came. God's word is absolutely true. As a matter of fact, what, Jesus, what Judas did had to be done so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. That's exactly what Peter says. So Peter points the disciples and himself to the reality that God's word defines us. That it is absolutely entirely true that what happened with Judas had to happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. So that Jesus would actually go to the cross and would lay down his life for his beloved for the forgiveness of sins. And then we see that prayer being defined by God's word leads the disciples to trust in God's sovereignty. To trust that God is in control. To trust that God is moving everything toward Jesus. And we actually see that in verses 21 through 26 as they replace Judas. Peter, leaning on God's word, says, look, we know we need to replace Judas. Judas turned away. We've got these two guys who have been with us, who've seen the things that we have seen. Their names are Joseph and Matthias and 
seems like there's an equal, you know, chance that either one of those should be the disciples. So what we're going to do is we're going to cast lots. Think of it like this. They're flipping a coin. And they're saying, God, you choose. Is it going to be Matthias or is it going to be Joseph? They're trusting in God's sovereignty because at the end of the day, they know that it's not so much about replacing Judas as it is about the reality that the historical events of Jesus Christ are about to explode into all of the earth. They get that that's, like, that's, the, that's the point of it. And so they say, Lord, we trust you. We trust your sovereignty. It's your decision to make. They recognize that God was at work in his grace, pursuing and changing and moving everything toward Jesus. And that Matthias was not arbitrary, but rather Matthias is part of God's plan to make much of the planner, to bring the message of the gospel to the world. Notice with me for a second in this prayer, being defined by God's word and trusting in God's sovereignty, how God-centered the disciples are being. They, They have gone from, Jesus, what is your political plan to make sure that things work out to benefit us the most? to being incredibly God-centered. Now look, they're not always going to be like that, okay? As we move forward in the book of Acts, we'll see there are times when the disciples, the apostles, they're more God-centered than others. But in this moment, they are being very God-centered. And what they are doing is they are pursuing the very things that they watch their Savior Jesus do his entire life. Prayer. Jesus is absolutely committed to prayer. Jesus spent time with the Father. Jesus prayed for you and for me that we would receive what he has done. Jesus was absolutely committed to a life that was full of prayer, full of submitting what it is that he was doing to the Father, committing himself to the plan of the Father, to move forward, to move forward the, the, the plan of salvation and redemption through him. God's word, Jesus was absolutely defined by God's word. As a matter of fact, Jesus was God's word in the flesh, the embodiment of God's word. And throughout the entirety of his ministry, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is looking at people and his disciples and everything, and he is connecting everything that is in the Old Testament, God's word, being connected to him. That he is the fulfillment of all of that. That God is writing one story and that it doesn't change, and it's all about his grace pursuing, changing, growing, and saving us. Jesus was absolutely defined by God's word. And boy, did he trust God's sovereignty. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he was arrested, if you'll remember, Jesus prayed, Father, if there's any other way than this, if there's any other way, please, please let it be, but not my will, but yours. 
put my life into your hands, trusting in your sovereign plan and the plan that you, Father, and I and the Holy Spirit made before the foundations of the earth to bring about salvation and to make all things new. He absolutely trusted in God's sovereignty. The disciples are just doing what they watched Jesus do the entire time that they were with them. And here's what's true. I think that these prayer, God's word, God's sovereignty, are absolutely action items for you and for me too. Absolutely are. The power of Jesus removes the motivation of fear in the midst of uncertainty and replaces it with grace to live. Grace to live. And what that looks like is us being a people who, by and through the power of Jesus, are a people of prayer, a people who are defined by God's word, and a people who trust in God's sovereignty. And that means that our prayers should be absolutely God-centered, absolutely God-focused. Dave talked last week about how worship is supposed to be God-centered. Our prayers are supposed to be God-centered about His plan, about what He is doing, how He is moving, and how He is at work. Our prayers should be about us seeing our sin and our need for Jesus and that Jesus actually accomplishes salvation. He actually does it and purchases forgiveness for us. Our prayer should be asking God to grow in us a desire to see others the way that Jesus sees others as bearing God's image in his world and to see others come to know Jesus and what he has done. Our prayers should be asking God to grow in us a desire to see our lives and the world that we live in through the grid of a four-part story, holistically. Growing in us a desire to care about the things that God cares about, to be a people of justice and mercy and walking humbly with our God, to be a people who are thoughtful, to be a people who engage with compassion and generosity and caring and building up and not tearing down. To be a people who care about the things that God cares about. Justice, mercy, humility. The things that Jesus called the weightier matters of the law. The power of Jesus works in us to be a people of prayer. The power of Jesus works in us to be a people defined by God's word too. We should be growing in our conviction that everything is moving toward Jesus. We should be growing in our conviction that the Bible is entirely true. We should be growing in our commitment to that, which frees us to engage others and the world that we live in with a deep conviction that, that what we are all really looking and longing for is the transcendent and that that transcendent is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And to, to not operate out of fear and out of self-interest, but connecting what is going on in our lives and what is true in our lives and in the lives of others with everything that Jesus is doing and the reality that any truth that we see, the reason that it is true is because we see it in God's Word. In Jesus, the one who is the embodiment of the Word of God. 
God's word defines us, that means that we don't have to cave to sound bites. It means that we can be a people who are thoughtful. We can be a people who are compassionate and engaging, who love others, who strive to love the place where we live, strive to love God. It should lead us to ask of ourselves and ask of others. Being defined by God's word means that we should ask of ourselves and others, what are we doing to promote a place in a society of justice where we care about wrongs being made right, where we care about the protection of those who can't protect themselves, where we care about caring for others. What are we doing to promote a place that cares about the poor among us? What are we doing to promote a place in a society that values all of human life from beginning all the way through to the end and everything in the middle? Being defined by God's word means that we are a people who are asking ourselves, what are we doing to promote family? What are we doing to promote marriage the way that God sees marriage? What are we doing to promote flourishing in our households, in our hearts, and in our communities? And God's sovereignty The power of Jesus moves us to be a people of prayer, a people defined by God's word, and a people who trust in God's sovereignty. Beloved, we know the end of the story. Heaven and earth reunited. All things made new. Sin and brokenness no more. It's so much better than anything that anyone or anything in this world has to offer so much more transcendent than the fixes that get offered to us that at the end of the day are not enough. And that frees us to make decisions caring about what God cares about. It frees us to be a people loving God, loving people, and loving the place where God has put us. It frees us to be a people declaring the good news of Jesus. That Jesus has come. He's lived a perfect life And he laid down his life on the cross for your sins and for my sins that we would have forgiveness and we would have life to live in the midst of uncertainty and that everything is moving toward Jesus whose kingdom is justice and righteousness forever and ever. Beloved, Jesus actually accomplished salvation and everything in our lives is moving toward him. Whether that's the coronavirus, whether that's our economy, whether that's our kids making it back into school, whether that's our marriages, our relationships, everything and everywhere, the entire future is moving toward Jesus. And Jesus gives us power to live in the midst of uncertainty. And the way that power works out in us is that he grows in us to be a people of prayer, defined by his word, trusting in his sovereignty, and rest assured that Acts 28 absolutely marches on and that the message of the the gospel goes forth with all boldness and without hindrance. Beloved, let's be encouraged by that. Our Jesus is alive. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need to be encouraged this morning. As we look around us and we feel and we sense and we see and experience all of the uncertainty that's wrapped up in in our lives, we need something bigger than what this world has to offer. 
And Jesus, you are the bigger thing. You are the transcendent thing that our hearts are looking and longing for. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in us to believe the gospel more deeply. Would you work in us to be a people wanting to grow in our desire to be a people of prayer defined by your word and trusting in your sovereignty. And we pray these things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in your name, amen. Uh, as we uh, leave this morning and you leave out the sides of the buildings, um, we want to encourage you to, to go ahead and to get outside. But once you're outside, we want to encourage you to catch up uh, with each other uh, as well, too. Um, so I'm going to have a stand, uh, and uh, we will hear God's blessing uh, upon us. Um, we do want to be a people. Um, who are committed to prayer and being defined by God's word and trusting in his sovereignty. And so know that what I'm about to tell you is God's blessing from his word. And it is absolutely true because it's been bought with the blood of Jesus. Beloved, this week the Lord will bless you and he will keep you. The smile of the Father is upon you and he will be gracious to you. Both now and forevermore. The presence of our God is with us and Jesus will make us whole. He will give us peace. All things will be made new. All because of our Christ. Go in his peace.